Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, episode 91. This week's feature, if you like these games, try out Sight. We'd also like to thank our Patreon backer, Jamie. He saved us all a seat at the table. Jamie, we hope that one day you'll join us here at the table. You're listening to a proud member of the Dice Tower Network, dedicated to bringing podcasters together for the greater good of gaming. It's sort of like Voltron, but with better lip syncing. Find out more at Dicetowernetwork.com. Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, the podcast about board gamers and the insane fun we have at the table together. This is Chris. This is Anthony. And this is Daniel. This is Drew. And this is Jamie Stigmeyer. Jamie! Hey! It's, it's good that you're here. Your wish came true really uh, fast there, Chris. It's a little weird. Most people take that you know figuratively and you took it literally so yay (laughs) we're actually really glad that you're joining us here at the table this week and uh everyone we're so glad to have jamie steckmeyer president of stonemeyer games you probably know him from all of your favorite kickstarters like viticulture euphoria huskany and especially our favorite treasure chest So Jamie joined us this week to give us some inside information about his upcoming Kickstarter, Scythe. And for our feature review, we're going to talk about some game mechanics, some different themes, and basically take our favorite feature review. If you like this, try that. Well, this time we're going to talk about games that we love, mechanics, and all those types of aspects, and then see how we can find those things in Scythe. Yeah, you guys know how much I love this podcast, so it's really... I'm really excited to be here, kind of in the background of, of today's episode, to watch you guys do your thing. All right. All right. So on this episode, we're talking about The Gallerist, Tiny Epic Galaxies, Pandemic Legacy, The Prodigals Club, and and our At the Table is going to be Resistor, Tiny Epic Kingdoms, Fun Employed, and Conquest of Planet Earth, Apocalypse. Now, Jamie, since you're new, you probably don't know this, but we're really glad that you're here because... Somebody's got to help Drew get up on that tabletop. So, you know, low man on the totem pole, you got to help the man up. <laughs> yeah, I'll do my best. Shout it from the tabletops. <laughs> Sir, you're going to need to get down from there. Time to shout it from the tabletop. Top, 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 top. <laughs> hey, it's, uh, it's, this is uh, the tabletop where we discuss some of the news items that went out on the BGA podcast Twitter feed last week. The first one, one of our favorite museums, the the Strong Museum of Play in Rochester, must-see attraction. Annually, they they have an induction into their Toy Hall of Fame, and they just listed the nominees, among which are Battleship, Jenga, and Twister hmm. among the finalists. Jenga is actually a, a real curious example. It's a relatively new game from 1983. It has a fascinating history. It was invented by a British woman, Leslie Scott, and developed in Africa, uh, mm. Ghana to be specific. The other two games Milton Bradley put out in the mid-60s, though Parker Brothers had a version of Battleship out as early as 1931. None of those three games on that uh, final list are literally board games, mm. nor are the numerous dice and card games that we love. Do you think it's time that we, we scrap the phrase board game and switch to something else like tabletop or analog yeah i'm a big fan of tabletop as a term but that's partially because i'm a big fan of tabletop rpgs and so i'll cluster sort of all my hobbies together under tabletop gaming 
because it's just a more convenient label than going, oh, I like board games, and I like tabletop games, and I like card games, and I like miniature combat games, and I like it, it becomes the whole thing. Yeah, I still think board games just clicks in something with people about the, the childhood games, uh, Candyland and Shoots and Ladders. That's what they think of. Whereas tabletop sounds grown up. You know, when you say board games, it's usually more informative that you know that the game that you're going to play is based around a board mechanic instead of a card game. So you could have a board game that uses cards, or you could have a board game that uses miniatures, or you could have a miniatures game that has a board. So it's where the emphasis really lies and where the weight lies. So when I hear board game, I know I'm playing pretty much on a board, and that's the main strategy tactical area that's going to come into play well you know at the beginning of the year when chris and i did that prediction episode i said analog would be the phrase of the future i'm still holding out i I can see it becoming just a binary division you have digital games which are on consoles and apps and computers and then you have analog which is basically anything else which isn't digitized and then of course you're gonna have hybrid games which are a little both i'm holding out for that i want to switch over to guardian.com uh, it's the the website of the Guardian of London. It's bidding to replace Board Game Geek as the website of record for the hobby. Just about every week, there are a couple articles, great articles about board games. They they came up with a list of what they call the ten worst games of all time. Hmm. There's some obscure IP-driven games that deserve to be on that list. It's the they're the cardboard equivalents of William Shatner uh, <laughs> doing a musical recording of Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. Come on, it, they're really bad. But at least four of the games on that list are big sellers, Monopoly, Trivial Pursuit, Risk, and Cards Against Humanity. The question is not, why do casual gamers continue to buy games that serious gamers hate? The question is, what do casual gamers know about those games that serious gamers don't? Why are they still viable games in this day and age? And why do people hate them so much? I do have one take on Monopoly. Um, Monopoly is a game that I'm, I'm never really interested in playing again, but it does one thing that I think is really clever from a game design perspective, which is the best things in, in Monopoly that happen to you happen when it's not your turn, mm. like when someone lands on your property. Sure. Um, and that's that's really clever. That's, I think, why I, Settlers of Catan is so popular, because when it's not your turn, other people are rolling dice, and you're still getting good stuff. So even though Monopoly, I think there are a lot of other bad game design elements of it, I think that one thing is pretty cool. Yeah, mm. I could get behind that. I, like, I don't like games where I have a ton of downtime personally, so... Anything that keeps me engaged throughout the game, even if it's just watching what other people are doing, uh, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons why the Guardian uh, put Monopoly on that list was all the house rules, they say, that people add. Another list I wanted to uh, switch over to, Popular Mechanics. They listed the 10 best board game apps. Um, and even for some reason, Galaxy Trucker, which I just can't, I cannot see that game being squeezed on a tiny little smartphone. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's on the list. Makes sense, Drew, because it's popular mechanics. So Galaxy Trucker is all about a vehicle that basically falls apart, and their magazine's all about putting things back together again. So, eh, you know, it's profitable for them. <laughs> Guys, you keep coming up with things I've never thought of before. <laughs> wow. Popular game mechanics. There you go. Okay. <laughs> so I thought, let's, let's boil this down to three essential board game apps that, that people need need to have and if you guys looked over that list was there anything that just jumped out like this is a must-have forget about the others you got to have this app so i've played a lot of ticket to ride i think that's one of my favorites but only on a tablet doesn't really work on a phone and splendor app is really good too i think you can play a game of that in like six minutes yeah i'll jump in with small world 
it tends to be a little fiddly with all the different pieces and tokens, but Days of Wonder did an outstanding job with the app. It's beautiful. It plays exceptionally well. And I'll also throw in uh, Suburbia. Not only do you get to play the regular game, but they have this challenge mode where you're actually trying to build the cities. And that was always funny about Suburbia, that usually at the end of the game, you looked at your city and you were like, hmm, industrial parks, no residents, no people living there, bad reputation. Ah, Detroit. <laughs> I built Detroit. <laughs> Don't know how I did that, but Detroit was built. So, oh, sorry, Detroit. We love you. <laughs> so, Ticket to Ride, Splendor, Suburbia, and Mall World. Uh, Geek.com did another list of sorts. They were out looking for massive crowdfunding disasters. You know, I, I think almost all of these items on the list, except for the uh, the Kobe beef, um, <laughs> which is just a scam. Like, I wouldn't even put scams on this list. But almost all these could be avoided with proper budgeting. If you if you budget a little bit better, like, that would have solved Glory to Rome. It sure. would have solved... I don't know. Well, actually, I don't know if it would have solved the doom that came to Atlantic City. But if the guy had been ethical and had stuck to a budget, sure, it would have been okay. But yeah, I see that so many times on Kickstarter where you just don't budget correctly, and that's that's why things fall apart. Yeah. So in other words, they should have read your blog, is what you're saying. That would help. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> One last item I wanted to bring to your attention. This was something from the New Yorker magazine, actually, not directly related to board games, but um, close connection. New Yorker had a profile of Reed Hoffman, the founder of LinkedIn, and I would call him a game geek extraordinaire. Okay. This was a man who made his first business contacts through revising Dungeons & Dragons books for Chaosium. He, he saw mistakes. He said, hey, I want to correct these things. He became an editor, basically. He reviewed them and, and edited books for them. Just recently, he took Catan, Sellers of Catan. This was after, obviously, finding, founding LinkedIn. And he made a version of it for his friends called The Startups of Silicon Valley which I think was really cool. The graphic that the New Yorker uses shows Hoffman standing astride a game board with hexes and meeples. So it's really part and parcel of who he is. So my question for us uh, as we approach games, have you ever felt a desire to take someone else's game, alter it to suit you? Now, if we have any game designers among us... We, do we? <laughs> <laughs> how would you feel if someone else took your game and said, eh, I think I'll just, I'll just change this and do this and do that, change a few things? Yeah, that's what I was thinking about as you, as you pose this question because with board game geek i subscribe to all of my games on there so whenever anyone posts anything about them i see it and it's it, it actually took me a while to get used to that for viticulture and euphoria where people would say like you know i i see how the designer did it this way but i i want to play this way and for a while i, I was i wouldn't say i got defensive but i would kind of stand up for or i would at least represent why i made that decision in the design in the first place but at this point, I just want people to have fun with my games. So if, if it's more fun for them to tweak really anything in my games, that's that's cool. I, I don't want to touch that. It's a work of art. <laughs> well, I think but... it makes a big difference, too, how people represent that when they talk about it online. If Like if someone comes on and says, hey, this element of the game really sucks and it's bad and this is what it should have been, that's very different than someone saying, hey, I tried this thing and I had fun with it with my gaming group. I, I might try it again. I don't know how many other game designers read those types of comments, but for me, that makes a big difference, the way people talk about it. Cool. Okay. Appreciate that. That is all the news that we have from the tabletop. So uh, be sure to catch the news almost as it happens by subscribing to our Twitter feed at BGA Podcast, where we send out bits of news, curiosities, and our own brand of humor six days a week, Monday through Saturday. Guys, 
I got to leave you for a while to take care of a problem. I just got a call from my vineyard. Yeah, I have this vineyard in Tuscany. I oh, not again, Drew. The vineyard? <laughs> the vineyard. Yeah, it's it's uh, it, winter's oh. coming on. I'm trying to get the harvest in. And it's hard to get more workers because I don't have enough housing for them. Uh. Sure, visitors have plenty of cottages. My <laughs> workers have to cram into one tiny little house. Who designs vineyards like that anyway? <laughs> Listen, the grapers are griping. I got to go. I'll see you all in the final round. And now, our acquisition disorders. Acquisition disorders? That's crazy! Only needs the base game. Nothing else but the base game. The base game and the expansion. See? Nothing else. Just the base game and the expansion and the promos. The base game, the expansion, and the promos, and of course, the upgraded components. Why wouldn't you have the upgraded components? So the base game, the expansion, the promos... Alright, so for this week's Acquisition Disorder Corner, we're going to bring you four games that we really want to get to the table. Anthony, why don't you start us off? Alright, will do. This is a game that I'm pretty sure Chris talked about a few months ago when it was actually on Kickstarter, and as I often do, I missed it. The The game itself, though, is The Gallerist, and this is a, the new game from Vital Lacerda, the designer who recently brought us Kanban, Automotive Revolution, CO2 a few years ago, and Vinhos. So big, complicated games, and maybe that's why whatever phase I was in at that time, I was not ready for a big, complicated game. But now looking at the game, because it's just about to be released, and uh, backers are gearing up to get their copies, uh, first one's going out at Essen here this next week, I am very interested in this game now. And of course, that's always the case. Well after the Kickstarter when I get to pay full price. <laughs> so you're playing the role of the gallerist. You're trying to buy, display, and sell art, build international influence, draw visitors to the museum, all these different things that you have to do to kind of make it successful museum. And as a result, when you look at the board, there's a lot going on. It looks similar art style and you know in terms of what's going on on the board and the number of different spaces there to something like Kanban and I don't know if it's as complicated I'm going to assume yes based on the pedigree that's not a bad thing it's just you know mentally need to be there for it but it does have a solo variant which is always something that I'm very interested in especially with a game this complex because not a lot of solo games offer that kind of epic feeling at the table it means I don't get it out as often but when I do it's it's a fun night and the game itself integrates a little bit of a worker placement, which is always a win-win for me. And the whole idea of art curation and the gallery operations, that's an interesting uh, take on things as well. I had friends who were art history majors back in college, and one of them is actually works with a gallerist now at a museum in California. So they've told me stories of you know all these different goings-on. There's so much going on all the time. It sounds like a very interesting world, and uh, this game looks like it captures that in a unique way. So... I'm interested in trying it, and at some point when it's available, um, hopefully picking up a copy. Daniel, what about you? What are you looking for? Well, uh, I'm a big fan of sort of quick-playing, small, simple games, uh, and I recently played Tiny Epic Kingdoms, which I'll be talking about in just a few minutes. And so I'm kind of on a Tiny Epic Everything kick right now, but the one that really appeals to me most is Tiny Epic Galaxies because, you know, I love, I'm a sucker for a good sci-fi theme and a good sort of galactic empire expanding game. So the way this game works is that you are uh, rolling dice and using uh, the actions that these dice represent to improve your economic influence, your diplomatic influence, your energy, your cultural influence, etc. So in a sense, it's a standard sort of culture development game with a sort of galactic theme. The way they phrase it's actually a little weird. They say that you expand your galaxy, which has really strange astronomical implications like where you're like pulling new star systems in or something uh, i think they mean you expand your galactic empire uh or intergalactic empire but uh you know i'm a sucker for anything that can fit in my pocket 
and I can play with just about anybody with really very little warm-up. Uh, and the Tiny Epic Blinks seem to fit that very well. So Tiny Epic Galaxies is uh, next on my list, I think. So that's kind of like Mega Civilization, right? Because <laughs> you're going to play Mega Civilization. Like, see, look, I'll play Tiny Epic Galaxies if you play Mega Civilization. I will pl- play Tiny Epic Mega Civilization. <laughs> there you go. All right. Nailed I'll it. play that with you. <laughs> House <So> rule. <laughs> speaking of variants on uh, designer's games, yes. Take Mega yes. Civilization. <laughs> you see how long that board is? It's like yes. seven feet long. <laughs> it comes with a table. <laughs> All right. How about you, Jamie? What do you have for us this week? So for my acquisition disorder, um, I have uh, a game called Pandemic Legacy that I should receive this week. I pre-ordered it a while ago from Z-Man Games, and I've been really, really eagerly anticipating it. The basic idea, I think you guys have talked about it a little bit, but the basic idea of Pandemic Legacy is the game starts out as Pandemic, and as soon as you start playing, you start opening envelopes and and stickering the board and changing things and it, it plays out i've heard like a 12-part yeah. television series where new challenges will come up every episode and you'll bring elements from the previous episode to the next one i've, I've watched the uh the dice tower guys talk about their experience with it and it, it sounds like i i had such a great time with risk legacy which is by one of the same designers yes and i just know that i'm gonna have a great time with it in my group and really the only challenge right now that we're trying to figure out is who, like it only plays four people. So I have to choose three other people out of my gaming group to play mm-hmm. it. And so uh, I've been accepting bribes and <laughs> you know, whatever whatever it takes to, to see who the, the three final people will be. See who pandemic. survives the pandemic and who's left alive to kind of help you in that kind of final quest. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> it's real super, super thematic. <laughs> Especially when you have a game like Pandemic, which plays so many people, and oh, I'm sorry, guys, you didn't make it, you know? <laughs> well, the game that I'm really looking forward to is The Prodigals Club. Now, this is a game by designer Vladimir Suchi. Now, this game is interesting because what they're calling this is the spiritual successor to Last Will. Now, if you played Last Will, or if you haven't played Last Will, basically it's not an engine building game so much as it is a temporary engine building up in order to break it down. Now, if you remember that 80s classic, Brewster's Millions, the Richard Pryor movie, where he has this large inheritance, and the whole idea is to be able to spend it all, and if he's able to do so, he wins. So the game is all about building an engine to spend the money, but when you're building the engine, now the engine's worth something. So this game here is very similar, and and by that, like I said, it's a spiritual successor. So in this version, the upper crust, the, 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 the fancy people, are realizing that it is the little people that are actually living the best life, so they are trying to destroy their reputation. So... There's three separate competitions in this game. So one is trying to lose an election. The second is trying to get rid of all your possessions. Third is trying to offend the most influential people in society. You can play any of these two competitions as the game, so you can swap out and have a variety of different challenges, or you can actually use this as an expansion to Last Will. I really like Last Will, and I I like the expansion to it already so this is a game that i'm really looking forward to it seems to be a little bit more streamlined but it plays almost identical and i'm gonna pick up the prodigals club 
Jamie, what do you think about that uh, whole spiritual successor kind of thing? Have you ever heard of that before? This seems to be flying around a little bit. Yeah, it's an interesting concept. I actually just played Last Will um, the other day. Okay. Um, so it's interesting to hear that they've not just made it a standalone game, but also somehow an expansion yeah. for Last Will, which is really clever. I've heard, you know, there, there are a few other games that do things like that, like where you can incorporate some of, like, maybe the characters from the new game into the past one. Yes. Think uh, Tail Feathers, which is coming out from Platinum. You're right, exactly. And there was also last week we were talking about the Manhattan Project Energy mm-hmm. Empire, which, once yeah. again, it's, it's almost identical mechanics, almost identical artwork, but just taking from, like, a, a slightly different perspective. Yeah, and Agricola and Caverna are kind of oh, sure. classic examples. Yeah. And now, At the Table with BGA. So for At the Table this week, we're going to talk about four games that we were able to get to the table, let you know if it was a buy and you should pick this game up, if it's a play and it's definitely you should sit down and enjoy, if it's a dodge and you should avoid at all costs, or maybe possibly the game's a burn and just really doesn't help the industry. All right, so let's get started. Anthony, what do you have for us this week? So this is a Kickstarter game I did back. Woo! Yay! Uh, <laughs> didn't miss it. <laughs> I actually have to thank J.R. Honeycutt from Nerd Night. He actually pointed me in the direction of this game way back when it was funding, and it just came in the mail a couple weeks ago. And got a chance to play it a few times through. It is a quick two-player game. It's called Resistor uh, from Anthony Amato and Nicole Klein. The game itself, when you look at it, what you're going to see is it looks like computer chips kind of what you're getting it's a little bit of an abstract game it's a little bit of memory involved there's some root building network building the game itself is pretty short any given time i played through it it didn't take more than 20 minutes and half the games are about half that so it's pretty quick but it's not as light as that makes it seem Um, it's actually pretty tense and pretty heavy for a two-player game that only takes 20 minutes so the theme of the game is it's the future and there are two supercomputers who are trying to out-compete each other to launch their nukes at each other first. <laughs> so this is the end of the world, and you're trying to quote-unquote win it, because nobody wins the end of the world. But you do still feel fine, right? Absolutely. All right. You win Whew. if you win. <laughs> so the goal to win the game is to de-escalate the opponent's DEFCON rating. So if you get them up to DEFCON 5, uh, you win. And th- they can actually heal a little bit, so they can bring it back down through various actions. So it's not a straight five victory point game, but it's going to go up and down until somebody wins or until a certain condition hits and then the game will be over and you'll have to decide who um, who has the highest DEFCON rating. That's a loser. The game itself is incredibly tense. They just back to, it just shipped to backers here in the last couple of weeks. I just got my copy maybe 10 days ago. But keep an eye out for it. It'll be coming from level 99 in distribution, so it should be online hopefully soon. It is... Very interesting, and I, if you like abstracts, and if you like kind of that brain burning kind of game, you will like this. I'm going to give it for myself, only a buy for me. If that's the kind of game you like, I would say it's also a buy. If you do not like abstracts, if you do not like that heavier, heavier type of game, play it first. Hey, Daniel, what about you? What do you got this week? Uh, so this last week, I got a chance to play Tiny Epic Kingdoms, which was a very exciting experience. Uh, Tiny Epic Kingdoms is a small two to five player game that plays in about half an hour. It's sort of an area control game with a little bit of resource management. And then you've got variable player powers in the form of tech trees, or in this case, magical research trees, that allow you to develop very different play styles for the various races. I think the thing that caught me most by surprise here and was most satisfying to me about Tiny Epic Kingdoms was exactly how amazingly variable the different sets of powers were 
how different every race felt, despite being such a very simple game. They all had a very clear way that they were designed to play. And that's not to say that, of course, that you were railroaded, right? There is still room to move about and different ways to utilize their powers. But no two felt alike when I played through it. Uh, for me, Tiny Epic Kingdoms is an absolute buy. Don't think that Tiny Epic Kingdoms is going to rival Small World or longer, more substantial area control games, if that's what you're after. Uh, Jamie, what about you? What did you get to the table this week? Yeah, so uh, I was trying to figure out a game, a newer game that my group has played lately, um, especially focusing on the newer game. And I was surprised to realize that the game that we played two weeks in a row that is also the newest is a game called Fun Employed. Uh, Fun Employed is a game that was on Kickstarter last year. It was related to uh, designer Rob Davio. He has a he's the designer of Wrist Legacy and a bunch of other games. Mm-hmm. Um, who I really admire as a designer. He's not the actual designer of the game. The, the designer I think is Anthony Costa. But I was just curious about it because I, I trust Rob Davio's judgment, and I got it. And Fun Employed is a it's essentially a party game, really, um, where. Each player takes a turn drawing a card that lists an occupation that all other players are going to apply for. They're going to apply for a job to be whatever that occupation may be. And they're going to use these other cards that have kind of just silly words and traits and attributes on them that they have to relate to the the job opening. In my group, we play mostly heavy Euro games, but we found that we... We like to end the night with a much, like a fun, lighter game. And for a while, that game was Telestrations, and we still love Telestrations. But I, lately, that game has been Fun Employed, and I think the reason is this. Because I, I played Fun Employed a little while, like maybe six months ago when it came out, or whenever it came out earlier this year. And it was okay, but we were basically playing by the rules where you get to look at your full hand of cards and plan your pitch in advance, your pitch for why you want to have the job. And it's okay that way, but it's kind of a lot of pressure on you to be really funny and on the spot and creative. And that doesn't always happen. Like, you might just have a card that that you can't twist into that certain job ac- occupation. You know, we all have those creative blocks where you can't think of something funny at the off the top of your head. And so we've started playing more and more where you don't see your cards at all until the moment that you flip each one. So you might say, okay, I, you know, I'm Jamie, I'm, I'm applying for the job as the as the train conductor, and then I'd flip a card that would reveal whatever the thing is. And almost always, it's on-the-spot fun. Like, the card itself ends up being funny, and it takes the pressure off you, the person, the job applicant, to actually be funny. And then you get the, the chance to, like, enhance the humor a little bit if you want. But we found that that little change just makes a huge difference how much fun we have with the game. And I've really enjoyed it the past, you know, more of an activity than than, a, than an actual board game. So would you uh, recommend this as a buy for other people? If you're willing to kind of twist the game into what's best for your group, fun way to kind of end the game night on a relaxing, sure. laughter-filled note, I'd call it a buy. All right. Wow. That's pretty good. Okay. So the game that I was able to get to the table this week is Conquest of Planet Earth Apocalypse. Now, this is the expansion for the Flying Frog Productions by Jason Hill. Now, Conquest of Planet Earth is probably, in the truest terms, an Ameritrash game. And it really is. It's all about the 1950s and the 1960s sci-fi classics where these really 
bad, creepy, rubber-suited aliens are taking over. But uh, with this game, it actually turns it on its head because you're actually playing one of these various alien races trying to trying to conquer the Earth. Now, what's really interesting about this game is it plays both as a co-op and as a competitive game. Now, I've had this game for quite some time, but I haven't been able to get to the table for two reasons. First, as I said, it is a really Ameritrash game. It is all about the theme. It is all about form over function. This is basically moving, attacking, seeing if you win, and then moving again. And if you're not into that 1950s, 60s, rubber-suited kind of alien monster coming to Earth, this game is really not going to be for you. Um, What's also interesting about this game is that it comes with a CD, and it has all this kind of weird alien music that goes to each races. I'm going to say the game could be a play if it is something that you really do love. Like I kind of grew up on some of that stuff. I'm just talking about the co-op play. I have not played the competitive play yet. And I will get that in in the future. And then we could talk about it then. And now BGA's feature review. So for our feature review, we are going to take our favorite feature... If you like this game, try out these games, and we're going to turn it all upside down, and we're going to tell you about games that we really like, and why, if you like those games too, you should try out Scythe. So, Scythe is a new game that's going to be coming out on Kickstarter from our great friend Jamie Stegmeier from Stonemeyer Games, and we have the intimate in-depth details about the mechanics, the themes, the functions about the game, what makes it great, and why you should go out and back this campaign. Jamie, why don't you tell us a little bit about Scythe and a little bit about the upcoming campaign? Sure, yeah. It's a game set in an alternate history 1920s Eastern Europe in this world kind of created and imagined by an artist named Jacob Rolzalski who lives over in Poland. And Jacob's created this world where, where mechs, are part of kind of daily life. They're part of what the, the people who are farming the land and producing on the land see every day. And in in terms of how what that means for the game is that it's a 4X game where players are different characters representing five different factions who are converging upon this patch of land in Eastern Europe. And they're trying to expand their empire. They're exploring this new land. They're exploiting it for resources. And they're trying to exterminate and, and compete against the other factions. There's a lot going on inside, and so I thought I'd just mention real quick what what it what a turn looks like inside, just so you get an idea of of that that micro perspective. And on basically on a turn, a player will on their player mat um, will take one action. It can either be they're they're moving, they can upgrade, they can build, they can recruit. There are eight different actions they can choose. And on your turn, you're taking, you're choosing one section on your player mat and either taking one of those actions or an action that's associated with that other action. So you might be moving some of your units, and then if the, the build action is linked to the move action on your player mat, if you're able to also build, you can do that as well. So you can move and then build. And then that's your turn. Turns are really quick to keep the game flowing. The end game is triggered when... A player has achieved six different global goals that anyone can achieve. And at that point, you kind of, you look to see who's the most popular. And that popularity determines a few different point scoring categories to determine the winner of the game. When does this Kickstarter campaign start off? Kickstarter will be running from October 13th until November 5th. So let's get started. Let's talk about some of the games 
that really relate to Scythe in terms of mechanics, in terms of theme, and basically what you're going to be looking at, Scythe, even though you haven't played it yet, maybe you've played parts of it in different games that you really love. Anthony, why don't you start us off? So one of the games that got mentioned you know, in the write-up, Jamie, that you put up for Scythe is Terra Mystica. It represents a lot of things I like, actually. It's one of my favorite games. But specifically, one of the things I like, and I like this in a lot of games that are kind of high up on my lists, is uh, engine building. It's a type of mechanic that I really enjoy. And Terra Mystica does it in a very interesting way, I think. Another game that does something kind of similar that I like, but it's a little less set in stone at the beginning of the game, is Nations. So Nations is a civilization building game, another one of my favorite types of games, and how it uses engine building is a little bit different. You do get a player board at the beginning of the game that corresponds to a different civilization, and it's going to have certain resources that you're going to get early on. And throughout the game, you're trying to basically pick up different cards off the board. You're going to be using workers to, to buy different cards that are going to upgrade your board with new abilities that you're going to be able to use in the future, new resources you're going to have access to. But every time you purchase a new card, it's going to get rid of another one because you have a limited number of spaces on your board for where you can take actions. The types of engine builders I like, there's lots of other ones out there that are a lot of fun too. One of my favorite games is Spirium. It's, it's all engine building, but it's a little bit shorter. Some of my favorites. Daniel, how about you? Uh, so I'm going to be talking about deterministic combat, and let me say a little bit about what that means. Deterministic combat draws sort of a middle line between the totally chaotic dice-chucking combat on one hand, where everything is almost entirely uncertain, and what you might call scripted combat, where three beats two, and everything is absolutely certain before the combat is entered into. Deterministic combat does have uncertainty in it, but the uncertainty comes not from the effect of randomness, that is, not from dice being thrown, random cards being drawn, but rather because you are uncertain what your opponent is willing to put into the pot, right? You're not sure what they're going to bid. The way that combat works inside is that you have a certain military power counter, you set a amount that you're willing to bid, how much you're willing to spend on this little rotating wheel, and then you can pull cards that you have collected throughout the game that add additional military power and shove them in there. This, combined with some other factors, will determine how combat comes out. And this is going to sound like a pretty familiar mechanic to those of you who have played or watched either of two very famous games, uh, the first of which being Kimmet. Uh, Kimmet is probably the best-known deterministic combat game out there right now, where combat is determined by players placing, uh, as initially hidden information, right, down on the table, sort of their bid, how much they're willing to contribute to this one specific fight. You both flip, and then you see how it resolves. Right there, we see how there's uncertainty in that you don't know what card your opponent's putting down. But... Once both cards are down on the table, the die has been cast and fate of your armies has been decided. Uh, Blood Rage, like Kemet, uh, you have a certain unit strength that you bring to the table. And you add to that cards that you play face down, flip over at the resolution phase. Uh, and the total number of your unit strength plus this card strength uh, come out to tell you your total combat strength. These numbers are compared and to the victor goes the spoils. I'm a very big fan of deterministic combat as a way of resolving conflict because it introduces a level of playing your opponent as well as the game, a little bit of bluffing and measuring up how important this is to the other players at the table before you determine how important it's going to be to you. 
which always adds to me an enjoyable level of strategic and tactical depth. Right? You have to understand your opponent's goals and values, how much resources they have, and how threatened they are from various fronts to be able to understand and predict accurately what they're going to be willing to put down on the table at any moment. Uh, and I should note that I really like the way that Scythe does it. One of the things that people do know about my game preferences is that I am always looking for asymmetrical factions. I'm really looking forward to not just having a faction that has, oh, I get to play yellow or I get to play green or maybe I get one random card or I get to draft a card. But what I'm really looking forward to is actually diving into the long-term strategy of a race, of a faction, of a character that actually lends itself to its own little world, its own little universe, so that while I'm playing that specific faction, I really do feel like I am part of their little world in conflict to the other races that are going on. So the games that really kind of speak to that, at least currently, first off is Dominant Species. Now, we got to play this with our friend Dave, and he kind of dragged us kicking and screaming because we first looked at the board, and it's completely abstract and the game time is just endless so why would you want to play this game well it's because of the asymmetrical factions now in this you are going to get a specific species that you're going to play throughout the game that's really going to determine your play style you really do feel like you're trying to help your species survive and you really are enjoying all the little different elements that come into play with just your species alone now, another game that's a little bit more Ameritrash, as we were talking about in this episode, is Rune Wars. Now, Rune Wars has four different races that come into play here. Now, with each race, you're going to get a couple of things. First off, you're going to get different units. Now, they're not radically different than the other units in the game, but they do play slightly differently, and it adds to the flavor. So, if you're going to play the elves, as I always do, you're going to get archers, right? Because that's what elves are all about, or at least that's what Tolkien tells us they are all about. Rune Wars does a great job at that asymmetrical faction play. So, Jamie, you heard about our three loves when it comes to these different mechanics that are going to be in Scythe. How do they relate to Scythe as a total game? Yeah, you all gave some really great examples there. Um, I'll start with engine building, where uh, Anthony talked about Terra Mystica and Nations. If you look at the player mats inside, they actually look kind of similar to the Terra Mystica board, where you'll start off with a lot of tokens on top of your player mat, and during the game, you'll be removing them, which exposes new benefits on your player mat. So constantly throughout the game, you're kind of making decisions as to whether or not you want to take a suboptimal action now, or if you want to upgrade it or uh, do other things. You can upgrade, you can recruit, you can build. All those things make actions better. So you're trying to decide, should I take suboptimal action now or hold off until I've improved it a little bit and then take it in, an optimal version of that action several times? So I really like that decision point in the game. And it's I think it's somewhat gratifying later in the game when you have this like really powerful engine built up based on all these things that you've removed from, from your player mat. That's basically my main comparison to Terra Mystica. Uh, Nations does have some slight comparisons to that in terms of the factory. There's the central part of the board called the factory, where if you go there and you end your turn there with your character, you get to discover kind of a mysterious new technology, which becomes a fifth segment of your player mat. 
And this is kind of similar to nations where you don't really know the cards that are there. You can't really plan ahead for it. You just show up there and trust that there's going to be something cool there because all those all the factory cards are very good. And so there's this moment of discovery when you arrive and you get to decide, okay, which one of these am I going to permanently add to my my economy, my in-game economy? I thought uh, Daniel did a great job of describing uh, what deterministic combat is and even how that mechanism works inside with the combat dial where you're spending power, which is a resource, and you're adding combat cards up to the number of combat units you have in combat. So if you go into combat with one mech and your character, both of which are combat units, you can put up to two combat cards behind the mat, behind your, your power dial, and the opponent play, opposing player doesn't know how many cards you put back there or what the numbers on those cards are. And some things I wanted to add to that in relation to what Daniel said is that there's kind of a push and pull happening here. Pull part is that one of the, the main goals that you're going after for the game or that you could go after in the game is to have a total of 16 power. And so if you're spending a lot of power in combat, you are moving away from that goal. So you kind of want to spend as little power as possible as it takes to actually win the combat, but you still want to win the combat because you get a star, you get a, you achieve a goal if you also win combat, but not so much so that you can also try to achieve that power goal. That's the pull part. The push part is that either player, if they contribute any amount of power, whether it's on your dial or through combat cards, if you contribute any amount of power, then the kind of the people of the land look highly upon you for putting up a fight. And as you retreat, you get to draw a combat card. And so it's kind of a reason for players, even if they go into it a little bit weaker than the other player, there's a reason to at least put like one combat card in or contribute a small amount of power, which keeps the stronger player on their toes so they can't just spend one or two power and win uh, really easily. So there's, there's this really nice guessing game that, like Daniel, Daniel described, push and pull in the deterministic combat of Scythe. And then last, Chris, you talked about asymmetry in games. Scythe has a lot of different little elements of asymmetry. I'm not sure if it's quite as strong as um, either of the examples you gave, really. But there are several levels of asymmetry in Scythe. One is that you start out with different starting resources on your faction map that are related to your military strength. And also you start with a... a a player mat that's randomly paired with your faction mat. So every game there's going to be a different player mat paired with a faction mat. So your economy will be slightly different during the game. Each faction has a different core ability that they'll be using throughout the game um, that's very different from faction to faction. And also each player's mechs, as you deploy a mech, that mech reveals an ability that benefits, it affects all of your mechs and your character. So every time you you deploy a mech, all of your mechs and your characters get stronger based on abilities that are unique to your faction. They're completely different from faction to faction. And the last little thing that's kind of overlooked, I think, when people sometimes look at the asymmetry inside is the starting position on the board. The board inside is not modular. It's a set map that depicts this patch, this fictional patch of, of Eastern Europe. And each faction starts on a specific place at the beginning of the game, and each faction will always start on the same place. And you're limited to uh, the resources that you can produce at the beginning based on that location. And you're also kind of going to be slightly closer to other factions and slightly farther from other factions. 
So there's a lot of asymmetry just in terms of that starting position compared to other factions on the board. Those are the really the four core elements of asymmetry inside. So the Kickstarter, as we mentioned before, will launch on October 13th, 9.30 in the morning uh, Central Time. There are no early birds or anything like that or limited reward levels. So if, Thank if you don't get there till 9.35, perhaps, you'll, you'll be okay. <laughs> um, so Scythe is, it does have miniatures in the game, has 25 different miniatures. And they're in every version of the game, every copy of the game. There are a couple different reward levels. There's the, the, the core reward level is $59, and that includes kind of our standard uh, money-back guarantee and really low shipping around the world. And then there's a $79 level that includes metal coins that our artist has designed specifically for the world of Scythe, They're really, these really beautiful metal coins. Then the $99 level is the collector's edition of Scythe, which also includes those metal coins. And it includes our realistic resources. You guys mentioned our treasure chest. So we pulled some of those resources from the treasure chest and put them in the collector's edition. Probably the thing that I'm most excited about about the collector's edition is that there is an extended board that's kind of like you'll flip over the normal board. And on the back of that normal board will be the same art. It's the exact same board. But everything is zoomed in 50% bigger. And the collector's edition includes kind of an attachment, a a separate board that you lay next to the board that completes that image. So if you have a really nice big gaming table, you can play this gigantic version of Scythe. I don't think it's quite as big as the Mega Civilization. (laughs) (laughs) And then finally, we have a $119 level that includes a 100-page full-color hardcover art book. That shows all of our artists' beautiful art in, in giant, you know, big, beautiful form. We've tried to make the cards in the game as big as possible, some through stretch goals, but even that doesn't quite do the art justice. And so we really wanted to have the art book option for people who wanted that. Now, you've playtested this game a lot from what I hear. Actually, how yeah. many playtests has this game gone through? Topped over 1,000 blind playtests of side. That includes over 750 multiplayer playtest sessions, and then after we finished all those, employees Morton, who does our solo games, our solitaire games, he took over. His playtesters have done another about 250 blind playtests of the solo version of Scythe. Yeah, and that's really important, especially with asymmetrical starting positions and powers, because it's really easy for one of those kind of sections of the board or power sets to be dominant and not realize it without that number of plays. That's exactly why we did it so many times. Yeah, I I wanted to kind of gather as much data as possible because anecdotally you might feel that a faction is more powerful or that a player mat is is better than the others. But when, when I had the data to say, okay, the data did show differences where there was a player mat that maybe won a little bit too few many times or a faction that did. Sure. And we were able to balance them out. That that made a huge difference to have that many people who willing to, to play test for us. You know, when I was looking at the board map, especially the larger size map, and I was and, and the animation on your Kickstarter page, it actually reminded me of the Game of Thrones, the board game, the second edition, mm-hmm. where you have all these different areas and those factions benefit from those resources from that area and that initial kind of startup. It seems like... That there's, a, like we were saying earlier, there's a little bit of an epicness, not tiny epicness, but really <laughs> large epicness going on here where, you know, pol- like you said, political intrigue and you're looking for favor here and you're trying to gain control and 
there's a lot of different kind of cultural kind of battle going on. Oh, yeah, yeah. The, the stakes are pretty high in the game, and I think that comes out players are playing it. I think the one of the, the nice things about Scythe, though maybe in comparison to Game of Thrones, which is a really cool game, is that Scythe really is maybe a 90-minute to a two-hour game at, at most after maybe a learning game. And so you can get that epic feel. And you'll still be friends with the people you played with, I'm hoping. (laughs) (laughs) So, Jamie, can you talk a little bit about the characters in this game and the sculpts, especially the animal characters that actually are pictured as part of the miniatures there? Yeah, and this is actually thinking about this on one of your recent episodes when you talked about depictions of female characters in games. Yes. I I think it's really cool that you guys bring that up a lot. Female characters and gender and and diversity. I I just think that's awesome. And that was a major focus of ours inside when we designed the characters. Out of the five characters, so each player is represented on the board by a character and their animal companion, which are each built into the same miniature. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, more than half of them, three of them are, are women who are, I feel, are depicted in a way that fully characterizes a, a fully formed person, a fully formed character. It's not over-sexualizing them in any way. They're just strong people. Yes. The character will have, they do special things. Like I mentioned that when they get to the factory, they, they discover some new technology. And they also, they'll have encounters as they explore the board. That's one of the key elements of exploration of the board, where you, you'll have these encounters where you'll draw a card and you're presented with three choices on the card. When your character has an encounter, they'll draw a card and they'll have three choices that has three different uh, mechanical consequences that you have to choose from. Sure. And what was the thought with the animal companions? Because that's something you usually don't see, and, I, and I'm really kind of excited about that. Well, that was a lot of the things inside come from Jacob's art, where I kind of saw some things that he was doing in the art, and I was like, well, you know, I, I really like the way that looks. How can I incorporate that into the game? And one of the things that Jacob is really kind of proud of is his Polish heritage. And apparently during the early 1920s, there was a famous bear called, I think, Wojtek, who was bear cavalry in the Polish um, (laughs) army. And this was a particularly famous bear. And so Jacob shows this bear in a lot of his art. And so I kind of was like... You know, I want to I want to pull that into into the game. It's not a strong mechanical connection in the game. Like your bear doesn't have a special ability that he does, but there are little hints of it in the mech abilities. Mm. Like with Primean Faction, they have an ability where you can uh, steal one of your opponent's combat cards right before combat. That comes from Eagle. The Eagle is the animal for the Crimean character, and so the idea is, you know, you send your Eagle over the opponent's base, gather some information. The Eagle comes back with that information that your opponent can no longer use. Wow, Jamie, can you tell us a little bit about the coins because? These are really unique and beautiful. You don't usually see these coming in a game. Yeah, Jacob, uh, I kind of gave him the idea of designing each coin after one of the different factions. Sure. And so he took a lot of ideas from actual kind of inspired by a a real-life country Uh or or an empire. And so he took older coins from those nations and and let them inspire these metal coins. I find what's interesting, too, in talking about the campaign page, plastic resource containers – Oh, yeah. And I'm just like, of course. Why? I don't have to buy Plano boxes. I am so happy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this actually came from uh, the game Alchemist. Uh-huh. It didn't come from the game, but I, Alchemist comes with these nice little closable containers. Sure. And it just makes setup and cleanup so much easier. And it's nice to – it's easy to, like, pass it around the table. If you, if you if someone can't reach, you can just pass it over to them. And so I was like, why don't we make that in – inside and and maybe hopefully future games too they're a little too expensive for us to put into the retail version of side but they are going in all the premium versions yeah and that's worth it because i I can't tell you how hard and you know this too 
when you have this great game and you want to get it to the table and you just can't find the right storage solution for a game, it it really is crippling to get that game to the table. Well, yeah, not just that too, but also the the setup time on some games that you probably love. Oh, sure. It, it takes a lot of time to, to set it up, and so I'm I'm doing. I tried to do a few little things inside to cut down on that that setup time. Can you talk a little bit about the extras that you could pick up with this game. So basically, what we did is all the stuff that comes in the premium versions of the game we converted also into add-ons. So if you say want a premium version of the game, but you don't want you don't want the metal coins, you could back at the core level. And then you could add on the realistic resources. You could add on the art book. All versions of the game also come with promos. So there are no Kickstarter exclusives, but there are some stretch goals that have promos that are included for free with every copy of the game here on Kickstarter, and they'll be sold separately after the Kickstarter is over. Is there anything particular that you really want people to know about this game that they may not glean from the actual campaign page or for some of the videos? What's the feeling you're trying to give there? Hmm, that's a that's a good question. One way to answer that is the feeling that I was hoping players to get when they play the game, and that from what I heard from playtesters is the feeling they're getting, which is kind of that you are constantly rewarded for doing things. You almost get double rewarded for everything you do, which is something I've been thinking about a lot in games. I like games that reward me for things instead of punish me, <laughs> punishing sure. me for doing. Uh, which is, you guys have you guys have mentioned like Nations is a game. Oh that's, sure, it's pretty punishing and it lets you feel clever um, when you are punished less. <laughs> but that's opposed <laughs> to Terra Mystica, where you are almost constantly rewarded with new things. And so in size, with almost every action you take, like when you do an upgrade action. Mm-hmm. You move a cube on your player mat from one of the benefits to a cost, which basically makes the benefit better and it makes something else uh, cost less. And so with that one action, you get the satisfaction. You're, you're rewarded twice because you get a better benefit and from then on you get a lower cost. And so I tried to build that kind of idea, that feeling into everything you do inside where I, I really wanted you to feel good and rewarded throughout the game um, especially because there are moments where you will fight other players and you may lose. And so hopefully like all the good feelings that you've had at that point kind of make up for that temporary bad feeling of losing and having a minor set. Does player count matter here? That's a good question. Game does feel a little different if you have two to three players compared to four and five. When you have two or three, you have a little bit more time and space to build up your empire. And um, I kind of designed it that way because I know some there are some couples who may want to play side but don't want to directly fight each other at all. Oh, wow. But they still want to have the satisfying feel of doing everything else and building up their empire. And so side is kind of built around that where you can, you can do that. You can not fight at all if you don't want to. Uh, whereas in a four or five player game, the, game, the board is a lot more crowded. The one thing that I've done, done to kind of bridge the gap between the two is actually something I took from Kemet, the game that Daniel talked about in terms of combat. Or in Kemet, you have you can jump across the board pretty easily, making everything pretty close to, to I think everything might be even equidistant in, on the Kemet's board. It's not quite that um, that perfect inside, but there are tunnels that you can enter and then pop out of any other tunnel on the board, hmm. which makes everything a lot closer. So even if you are playing a two-player game and you do want to interact with one another and you end up with factions that are on opposite sides of the board, they're actually really not no more than two spaces further than than an adjacent faction's home base because of those tunnels. So you can really choose whatever faction you want, but then allow yourself and your your other players to actually play the game that they want to play, 
whether it's exactly. yeah, whether it's more direct, you know, face-to-face combat or more of a Euro kind of engine building. Eh, maybe we tangle once in a while, but just for fun. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we saw that in playtesting where there were games where people just kind of went off on a dozen different combats, and there were others where they maybe had zero or one, hmm. and they were, they were satisfying experiences to pay based on what they were looking for on that particular night. Okay. Um, looking at the board, I'm actually looking for factions here. What's going on? Yeah, so we there are two expansion factions that we have in mind. We have not designed them. We have not playtested them, so they definitely will not be part of this Kickstarter at all. But we thought, okay, we could either put them on the board because we know we're going to have them at some point, or we can leave them off and you have to like put a, a tile on the board um, that's going to stand out. Uh, whenever we add those factions. So we just thought, we'll put them on the board, we'll show that they're going to be there at some point. And I kind of had them in mind as I was designing the core game, um, which I think is kind of important when you're when you're designing for the possibility of an expansion. One faction is uh, kind of the purple faction, and the bottom right of the board is Asian-inspired, Japanese-inspired. And then on the upper left, kind of a, a Celtic tribe that's come down from, from Scotland to interact with this this area of land. So these are factions coming from outside of Eastern Europe. They've traveled really far, and they want to they be a part of what's happening there. And when will we see those come out? Will that be a retail, <laughs> or will that be another Kickstarter? Or I don't know how we'll launch it. It may just be a, a retail thing that we release. Ideally, I would release it um, around November of next year. So it's something that I will be actively designing over the next few months um, and playtesting. And while uh, Scythe is in production. I mean, since so many of your games, I think, is it all of your games have come out through Kickstarter? The first version of our games on Kickstarter. Okay. We've done subsequent print runs outside sure. of Kickstarter. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of our, our go-to thing for um, gauging demand, building community, raising those initial funds. Last thing, for maybe some people out there who are listening and have back Kickstarter projects. And as we said earlier in Drew's news segment, that sometimes those campaigns don't come through. I guess what I really like to people to know is that, you know, we know this and many people in the industry know this. You're kind of a bit of the guru of Kickstarter as far as putting together fantastic campaigns and actually coming through with what you're saying. Probably most people don't know you weren't actually born, you were kickstarted. Uh, and I think that probably <laughs> lends to some of your abilities. But maybe for people out there who they're looking at this game, they they really want to grab maybe that $100 or that $120 level. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing to ensure that this game will come out in the quality that you're stating it and then on pretty much around the time, you know, considering it is a Kickstarter? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, in terms of, of timing, um, right now, as, as we're recording this podcast, we are actively shipping two products that were on Kickstarter, our treasure chest and Between Two Cities. Between Two Cities is a month earlier than we thought it would be, and the treasure chests are three months early. So we, we really do put a priority on sticking to the schedule, planning ahead for the schedule. Uh, I mentioned earlier in the podcast, budgeting is really important. So I've, I've heavily budgeted for this project. I've been working with the manufacturer for a while and really the big thing for this project, this is our first miniatures project. And I've kind of heard horror stories about miniatures projects that just go way over budget and, and take way longer to make than, than they originally anticipated. So to prevent that, we've been working on the miniatures since April. So where a number of projects that maybe people have been exposed to, maybe they start working on those miniatures um, when the project funds. We've been working on them for five or six months at this point, and we're 
we've already created the molds and we're, we're like ready to actually manufacture the game from that perspective. We're still doing graphic design on some other stuff. But that, that one part that I've heard horror stories about, we've really focused on that so that we'll be, be able to deliver it, hopefully as projected in August of next year. Great. So once again, I know we've mentioned this before, when is this project kicking off and how long do we have to back this project? Yeah, it'll be a 24-day campaign. We'll release a new stretch goal every day of the campaign from October 13th all the way through November 5th. So you've heard everything about Scythe, and you know that we've done right now about 91 episodes, but you may also know that we had a spiritual successor podcast, Kicking the Habit, where I did 31 episodes covering a multitude of different Kickstarter projects. Drew and I also talked about Scythe earlier this year, and I'm going to say for Scythe, you want to kick this game off as soon as possible. You do not want to miss out on this campaign. If you look at the history from Stolmeyer Games, the games have been produced in the highest of qualities. They've made their deadlines, and everyone has enjoyed them. The only downside will be if you don't back it at the higher levels because these are really high-quality components. And we've seen these components from other treasure chests previously and from Euphoria, so you know you're getting quality products. So get on Kickstarter, get to the Scythe page, and kick it off. And now, our final round. I am back for the final round. This week... We're celebrating Dictionary Day. It's October 16th, Daniel Webster's birthday. So keeping in mind that gamer terms like meeple and pawnage were accepted this year by the Oxford Dictionaries, what gaming term or phrase or abbreviation do you think should go into next year's dictionary? My choice is going to be quarterback because I am a, what's the word, kinesthetic learner of games i gotta put my hands on i gotta do it if somebody's teaching me a new game i don't want them over my shoulder telling me every single thing i need to do quarterbacking me it's frustrating nobody likes a quarterback during games during co-op games during rpg adventures and i think it's a good term that that has real world applications too people sometimes need to learn on their own a little bit of guidance but please don't quarterback me anthony how about you What's, what do you want to add to the dictionary? Yeah, I mean, for me, a, a phrase that probably applies to far too many aspects of my life is acquisition disorder. In the current iteration, that just means I have a huge wall of games behind me. But in the past, it has referred to various things that I like to collect. The baseball cards in my son's closet, the video games in my son's dresser, laundry list of other things. So I feel like acquisition disorder is an apt descriptor for many people's lot in life, including my own and probably most of our listeners. So that one should definitely be in the dictionary. Sent a lot of people to the poorhouse. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Daniel, how about you? What's your choice? Well, for me, it's probably going to be turtling. right? So in a game, turtling is when you're acting very defensively and refusing to sort of put your neck out there. And same sort of thing in real life, right? There are a lot of people, including myself quite often in the past, where you'll just absolutely refuse to leave the place where you feel safe, your comfort zone, and usually the place where you know that you're going to come out on top, right? You don't refuse to do anything you're bad at or anything bad like that. I think that should all go under the, the title of turtling. Jamie, did you have a favorite? I did. I, one, one term that I hear a lot is analysis paralysis, or AP as gamers call it, which is when you have such a, a large number of choices and options and paths that, that you kind of freeze up and it's, you take a while to make any of those decisions. 
And I, I kind of chose this one because my favorite type of gamer is someone who kind of acknowledges that that's happening and they're able to just make a decision just for fun, just to keep things moving along. All of us have probably had that moment in gaming where we're like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm holding up everyone else right now. I'll just make a decision and see what happens. And that's okay. And Chris, what would you put in the dictionary? Well, I would want to put in Ameritrash. Now, this is usually a pejorative term referring to games that have a lot of conflict and it's mostly form over function. But the term that we use, either Ameritrash or Americlash, actually refers to a whole number of games that we really do enjoy. Now, while they do typically have more emphasis on theme than they do on mechanics, there are still a number of great games out there that are Ameritrash games. And it shouldn't always be seen as a bad term. Ameritrash games are great for kind of invoking a whole world and universe in which you can kind of engage in. And more and more these days, you're seeing games that are actually hybrids. They're kind of partly Ameritrash, where they have themes and dice rolling. And they're also Euro games, where they have some mechanics. So once in a while, Ameritrash can be a little challenging, can be a little confrontational, can get you kicked out of a game. But most of the time, Ameritrash games are just a lot of fun. Thanks, guys, for all those contributions to the dictionary. And that is our final round. So that's everything for this week. Please keep in contact with us on Facebook, Twitter, BoardGamersAnonymous.com, our guild on Board Game Geek. Don't forget to rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, and if you can, please support our Patreon account. The more you support us, the more great gamers we get out to the table. Until next time, this is Chris. This is Anthony. This is Daniel. This is Drew. And this is Jamie. And clearly, we will save you. A literal seat at the table. Just want to say before you leave, Drew, we're all your friends, and Jamie's actually not here to talk about his game. This is an intervention. We realize you have a wooden grape meatball wine problem, and let's all go around and, and tell Drew how this wooden alcoholic beverage that he's creating is affecting us. Um, who wants to start? Anyone? No? All right. I keep squeezing, but nothing comes out! <laughs>